As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we come to your word and I pray that we might uh, be given grace uh, to listen. Strength, really, to proclaim and to receive um, truth uh, from your word that it would um, come to us in such a way that would cause us in the midst of the lives that we live to love you, Lord Jesus, more deeply, to worship you and to serve you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Psalm 119. I want to read the stanza that I read last Sunday. There's one more point from which I want us to see, to make. Psalm 119, please, verses 73 through 80. Psalm 119. This is the word of the Lord. Your hands have fashioned, uh, have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me, that your steadfast love comforted me according to your promise uh, to your servants, that your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me... I will meditate on your precepts, that those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is the last Sunday in this Christian season of the year called Lent. And uh, this season of the year is one in which we reflect upon the life of Jesus, particularly this incarnation, his humility. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and as he lives out his life as one like, like us. And we've marked it out in a couple of ways, I suppose. One is that we've been having communion every Sunday. Uh, as we read through the scripture, we don't find uh, a clear instruction as to how many times a year and how many Sundays we're to celebrate communion. Uh, and so we do it the first Sunday of every month. And then we set apart a couple of seasons, Advent and Lent, um, for communion as well. And, and, and particularly during this time of, of Lent, it's, it's known as a season of, of fasting and repentance uh, for people, um, particularly as we see the life of Jesus, especially as he's fasting in the wilderness and as he's tempted uh, by Satan. But for us, of course, uh, some even give up something for Lent. And so uh, usually, even during the season of Lent, Sundays are considered to be feast days. So we come and we celebrate around the feast of this uh, table, this table. Uh, of the Lord, and secondly, we've marked it out uh, by considering certain portions of Psalm 119, which we we'll do again this morning. This the Psalm is a celebration of the Word of God, and we know that not only the Psalmist, but particularly our Lord Jesus, lived upon this Word. He said that uh, as he met the evil one in the wilderness, and he continued to refer back to this Word, this very Word of God, the Word that brings and gives life. And so we've. Uh, 
found our way through it in various ways. And what's fascinating is the psalmist is celebrating the word of God, but he's doing so, as we've noticed, in the context of affliction, in the context of suffering, even in the context of persecution. Uh, and, and what heightens that for us is to realize that on a good day, we can say we love the word of God. The question is, what's, what do we say on a bad day? And he says, well, during the course of affliction, even persecution, I'm telling you that this word brings life, that I'm lost Without it, that it's my delight, it's my food, it's my drink, it's everything to me. I rely upon it, I live upon it. And that in his, is his way of providing testimony to us that we should as well live upon and according uh, to the word of, of God. Uh, affliction, sufferings can come to us in various ways, of course, in the course of our lives, physically, uh, by way of disease and death, and materially, by the way of want, need of various uh, material, physical needs, financial problems, we may put it. Uh, they could be emotional difficulties and afflictions that we face. It could be ones of relational difficulties, one with another. It could be social and political as well. But he knows all of those. Plus, he knows that this sense of being persecuted because he is a follower of God, because of the way that he's living his life, according to faithfulness, uh, faithfulness, uh, to the Lord. Um, uh, we see it. Uh, we've mentioned this, so let me just do it again one last time. Verse 21, he says, You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, uh, for I've kept your testimony. Even though princes sit, plot, sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate upon your statutes. You get the sense that there are those people who aren't following the Lord, but rather are scorning him or ridiculing him for following the Lord. Uh, you may have heard things like, you really believe this? Uh, you really follow this? You really think this is true? And he was getting the very uh, same things. Verse 50 cent, 51 says, uh, the insolent utterly deride me, but I don't turn away from your law. In other words, they're deriding him. They're criticizing him uh, at every uh, turn. Um, Continually, they come, uh, they come against him. Uh, we see it in this verse 78 that I read, that the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. They're, they're lying about him. Verse 84 says, how, much, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. In other words, they're, 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 they're coming up with traps to try to trap him so that he'll fit, fall away from the Lord, that he'll fail to live as he desires to live as one who follows God. And so they're setting even pitfalls for him to trap him uh, in all these things. Um, verse 122, give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. So they're even, we realize, oppressing him. Verse 42 says they're taunting him. And so you, you get the sense of what's going on in the context of, of his life. We, even in the days in which we live, know similar kinds of taunts and scorns and mocking, even as we follow Christ. Jesus warned us that that would be the case. He said, no servant is about his master. If they hated me, they'll hate you. And so we get that. And so that's what he's experiencing. But even in the midst of that, he has a great testimony of the word of God. The word of God is really true. The word of God is really life to him. And he meditates upon it. It's his, 
It's his delight. And he says, from this, you see, even in the midst of these circumstances, I know that I'm blessed. And I'm blessed because I know that I'm loved by God. I'm blessed because I know that my situation is good, because God is good. And even in my affliction, it was good that I was afflicted because it built my character. I didn't go astray because it enabled me to go back to God's word so I would know it and thus know him. And though I have something, therefore, that's very good, I have a a great knowledge of who God is and I have a great knowledge of his word and that feeds me and, and gives me life, animates me. And not only that, but I have something worthwhile to give that was last week. Very powerful thing to think about. Having been made in the image of God, very often when we're afflicted or suffering, especially when it's at the hands of other people, we wonder, do I have anything at all to give at all? Because I'm, I'm so concerned about myself, as I must be, because of all this that's coming against me. And so it begins to, 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 to become very depressed even at times because we wonder, do I have any value at all to others? Do I have anything really to give? And that's so important because made in the image of God, we're to be givers, we're to be lovers. And when we're suffering, we wonder, do I have anything at all? And his answer is yes. And notice, you remember how, how he puts it in verse uh, 74. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. They're not rejoicing over my suffering per se. What they're rejoicing over is that they say, I see someone who looks like me and I see someone who's suffering and this person is still walking with the Lord. This person is still saying, God has not abandoned me in the midst of this. And we say, yes, thank you. And so what we give one another during times of suffering and affliction is hope. We can say, look, God is still with me even now. And that gives hope and there's A great gift in that. So much so, the psalmist can say in verse 79, that those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. He's even inviting the attention in the sense he's saying, I'm walking with you in the midst of this difficulty. You're proving yourself faithful. What I want others to see is not me, but you. So let those who fear you turn to me so that they may know your testimonies, so they may know who you are, God. Again, a great gift. Even in the midst of our suffering, we're not unproductive. (laughs) Uh, We're still serving, loving others as we show who God really is. And that's a believable thing. You know, on a good day, and when we say God is good, everybody says, well, just like Satan said to God when Job was doing well, as long as all is well, of course he's going to praise you. But here in this situation, there's a sense in which our witness, our testimony becomes much more believable because we're praising the Lord in the midst of difficulty. He is now still, even here, good we say. But there's one other thing about this affliction and suffering that I want us to grab a hold of on this Palm Sunday day. One other thing that causes us to be blessed even in such times. And I take this from verses 78 and 80. So let me unpack this. Verse 78 says, let the insolent be put to shame Because they've wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. And then in verse 80, he says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes. 
that I may not be put to shame. So, so the question is, what's he really, what's he really praying here? Well, he's praying on the one hand that those who don't follow after the, the Lord will be shown to be false. In one sense, he wants his name to be vindicated and all of that because of the lies that have been told against him. But in a true, real way, it isn't so much about him, but about God. All of this hasn't been so much about him, but about God. And so what he wants people to see is who God is. And so he's saying, put the insolent to shame. They're the ones who's, who's deriding me for following after you, God. So, so, so really, I know what's going on here. They're really against you. They're saying, that I'm a fool for following you, God. They're, they're trying to make it look like you can't help me. You can't strengthen me. You can't support me. You can't help me and be with me through this. So, so sustain me so that I don't fall. So that they will be shown to be wrong about you. So put them to shame. And then on the other hand, he's saying, so don't put me to shame. In other words, strengthen me in such a way that I can live. Strengthen me in such a way that I can follow you. Strengthen me in such a way that that I can show you uh, to be good. Keep my heart blameless. That doesn't mean sinless. Because part of what God does for us in the midst of difficulty, when we sin, he forgives us. But he says, make my heart blameless in your statutes so that I may not be put to shame. I don't know what's the need for this. Well, it's the age-old problem that Satan, the enemy, always comes against God's people to accuse us. And so the psalmist is really saying, God, help me in the midst of this. As I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus was very honest when he was with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, and he told them, and uh, we find this in, in John 15, verse 18, the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of this world, uh, I chose you out of this world, and therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. And so, so, so we get that. We get that. Paul, in his life and writings, understands this very well. In fact, in a very blunt and even um, well, fascinatingly confusing way, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you may not know that in the same way. We may not know that in the same way of others. But, but we do know that as we read the newspapers and as we see Christians being mocked. It may not be a direct mocking of you personally, but it's for all of us. And we get that in the culture in which we live. We understand that um, in other situations, in other places. It's even more direct to them. But we, we understand that. And so, what the, what, what, what the psalmist is saying to us is, is, as we live our lives, you see, we live in such a way that even in the midst of our suffering, by remaining faithful, we defeat the enemy. 
See, the enemy's constantly coming against us and asking this question of us, where's your God? Where's he now? Remember, we looked at Psalm 42 a couple of weeks ago. We mentioned again last week, but just keep these uh, phrases in front of you. My, my tears say, where is your God? My adversaries say, where is your God? You see, all that. And so that's the big question. And what the psalmist is able to say, I know what it looks like, but he's with me. I, I know what it looks like, but I'm thriving in him. I know what he looks like. It looks like. But his word is really sustaining me at this moment in time. I really do trust him. I know that he loves me. I know that he's working my situation for good. I know that I have something of great value because I belong to him. And I know even for the people of God who look at my life, they can say, look at God. Not look at him, but look at God. Jesus said that they may see your good works. We could say, see your life. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so he says, he says it's, it's good, you see. God is really with me. I can really trust him. And so can you. And that very thing, you see, at the same way, defeats the adversaries. Defeats, if you will, uh, the enemies of God. We saw it in Job's life, right? That Satan wanted to destroy him. So he takes all this from him. Even the Lord lets him come against Job's body. And even in the midst of that, Job worships the Lord. And he brings all these counselors who sometimes can really, sometimes really messed with Job's head and his heart. And and yet still Job was inquiring of God. Job was after God. And then God gives him this great revelation at the end. And, 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 and who wins? Not Satan. He's defeated. Even Paul puts it like this. Turn Philippians in chapter something. Chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 27. Paul's speaking to this church. And he's saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may uh, hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, here our church keep striving. They're in the midst of persecution. Even there, Paul's in prison when he writes this. And and he's saying, I know they're against us, but, but I want you to be standing firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 28, and not frightened uh, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. See, the way you defeat your enemy is to be faithful. The way you defeat the enemy is to trust me. The way you defeat the enemy is don't let them see you sweat. Don't be frightened. Verse 29, for it's been granted to you, we could translate that, been graced to you, same expression. It's been granted to you, given to you, graced to you, uh, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. See, as believers were engaged in this conflict, and we may or not see it or feel it all the time, but it's really there. The evil one really is against us. And, and so we see it and we know it. And he says, all right, trust me. And when you trust me, not only will 
other believers rejoice. But you're defeating the enemy at the same time. Bear that. Keep that in mind. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15. Let me begin with verse 13. He writes, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. That is, that you suffer because you're following Christ. You'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, just proven wrong. We're not out here to embarrass anybody. That's not the point of it. We're not out here to, to sort of make them look bad in front of others. That's not the point of it. This sense of being put to shame is to show them that they're wrong, that you're no fool for following Christ. But in fact, the truth of the matter is, they are. And how will they know that? How will you defeat them? How will they know that? Well, by, your, by the hope that you have, you see. Continue in hope. By the word that you speak, the testimony that you give. When we share the gospel, that's a defeat for the enemy. Most especially when we've been persecuted. You get the sense that he's looking, he says, I've got them now. And then we say, no, God is good. He says, rats, I thought I had you. But I guess I don't, you see. When we give testimony of the goodness of God, uh, it defeats, it brings defeat. It is defeating for the enemy. That's why worship, the gathering of God's people to worship, is also, we could put it this way, warfare. Well, not physical warfare. We're not supposed to shoot at each other. It's not that. That's not kind of warfare. It's a spiritual warfare, you see. During the course of the week, the various ones, the enemy, and various ways comes against us, you see. And, and, and so come Sunday, there's always that big question. Are they still worshiping me or not? And so we gather on Sunday. And so while this gathering means many, 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 many things, there's one thing that we mustn't forget is that when we gather to worship and we gather to sing praises and we gather to pray and confess our sins and receive the forgiveness of God and we come together and make testimony of his, of, of, of his truth and we meditate upon his word, the evil one goes, rats, I thought I had him. But I guess I don't. And so all the critics and all those that come against us they would love to see the church go away, to love to see the church be destroyed. When we gather to worship on Sundays, you see, we're saying, sorry. Actually, we're saying, we're not sorry. We're still here. We're still worshiping. No matter what you throw at us, we're still here. And we're still worshiping you, you see. Um, funerals are so important for believers. Because you see, when someone dies, that's like the epitome of, where's God? 
and the grief that's legitimate and real in, in our lives. And, and, and we can express that grief openly and honestly to others. But when we gather as a company of believers, when one of us dies, is to be able to say, look, I, I, I trust in the truth of the gospel that this brother, this sister in Christ will rise. And, and so I, I'm grieving, but yet... As I gather to praise the Lord and to hear his word and to worship him, the enemy goes, ah, I thought I had him. I thought surely this would destroy them, but, I, but it doesn't. It just strengthens their faith. Weddings of believers in churches, in church contexts, Bring defeat to the enemy because we live in a world that's trying to redefine marriage and redefine gender and all of that. And when we come together to celebrate the union of a man and a woman, what we're saying is, no, no, this is what is true. And so when believers, when men and women join together as husband and wife in the name of Christ, it's a, an announcement to all our friends and all the enemies of the church. No, 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 no. God's word. Is really true when we baptize. Even as we baptize an infant, what we're what we're standing before the audience of not only friends but foe, not only seen but unseen, and we're taking this little one and we're sprinkling water on this kid's head, and we're saying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what we're saying is we believe the promises of God. We believe that God can take this sinful creature and work in such a way to bring cleansing. And all of our foes think, ah, thought I had him. And no, no, no. No, you really don't. As we live holy lives, you see, uh, the, again, we, we pronounce this defeat uh, on the enemies. When our foes come to us and says, well, do you really believe this? We say, yes, we do. And here is not only the testimony of our lips, but the testimony of our lives. Do you, do, you, do you think you're better than we are? We go, no, 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 no. We don't think we're better than you. And that's why we rely upon the word of God. That's why we pray that God's spirit will enable us to follow after him. That's the sense of this. We're not declaring we're better. We're simply declaring that God is and that God's word is true. And then he will enable us and help us. Please come and join us and follow him. That's what we're really saying as we share our faith and give witness to the truth of the gospel. We're telling of the hope that is with, within us. Jesus said, when you're persecuted for the sake of the gospel, rejoice and be glad. In one sense, he was saying his, his most particular application was they, it shows you're a Christian because you've, they, did, they did it to the prophets as well. And I take that and say, yes, rejoice and be glad also because when we give testimony of the truth, all of our enemies, seen and unseen, realize they haven't won. And that this gospel is true and it defeats our enemies. I think about this on Palm Sunday particularly. You know, I've been thinking about Palm Sunday as long as I can remember when I was a little kid carrying around a little palm branch and hitting my sisters with them and all that. Um, 
But I've been thinking about Palm Sunday, and as I mentioned at the time of confession, it's this, it's this conflicting sort of timing. Uh, there's, uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday are kind of bookends, if you will, to this thing we call Holy Week. For lack of a better term, all the weeks are holy, but this one, of course, for us, we just set it apart and think about it. As I suppose we are. But bookends here. We have Jesus being hailed as a king. We're not quite sure what that means. But, but come the next Sunday, he's, he's being declared to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. And, and, and here he is, the conquering king, the risen Lord Christ. And there he is. And so, so, so we see it. Well, we, well, we anticipate, even without understanding, we see come to fruition by the, by the end of the week. But... I've always asked myself the question, what did, what did Jesus hope during the course of that time? He certainly didn't hope in the praise of the crowd of that day. He knew the fickleness of the hearts of people. He knew what was to come. Certainly wouldn't have taken great comfort in his own disciples. Uh, he knew that one of them would betray him. Another one would even deny knowing him. And they would, as the prophet said, scatter. And he knew he'd be alone by all those people around him. As the week started, uh, he, he realized that his authority would be questioned. The question would come to him, by what authority do you do these things? His relationship with Rome and the world would be questioned. Who should we pay taxes to? He even knew that his understanding of who God was and the commandments of God would be tested. What is the greatest commandment? He knew that there'd be various ones to try to trip him up and to trick him uh, to prove that he wasn't the son of God, to put him to shame, if, if you will, uh, so much so that it got so, so bad that he was, he was arrested because of the betrayal of a friend. And, 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 and he knew the enemy who was behind all of this for that very enemy had gotten into this one Judas and, and, and set all this up. And, and, and as he comes to be tried, uh, lies are told about him. False testimony is given. And then even as he comes before other human beings, they mock him and they spit on him and they, they put on a, a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe around him and they kneel and they jeer before him, oh, you're the king of the Jews. And even as he hangs on a cross, people walk by and they sneer and they mark, mock and they scorn with great contempt. Oh, oh you said you'd, 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 you'd rebuild the temple in three days and so get down off that cross and do it. You said you're the king of the Jews. Well, get down off that cross. Say you're the son of God. If you get down off that cross, then I'll really believe you. You, you saved others, but can you really even save yourself? And so in all the midst of this, Jesus knows his own Enemies and their scorn and contempt against him. What, what sustained him in the midst of, 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 of all of that? Well, we know what sustained him. Could we say him the same thing that sustained the psalmist that sustained us? The word of God. The promises made. The covenant made between the father, son, and Holy Spirit. We see it in this great Old Testament passage, Isaiah uh, chapter 53. It lays out for us that there wasn't anything in Jesus that 
physically was attractive or attracted us to him. He was despised and rejected by, by people. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace um, because it's with his wounds we've been healed. And then verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He knew that ultimately, or we could even say foundationally, all of this came from his father. He had agreed to it. He knew this is what it would take. And thus it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he's going to pour himself out as a guilt offering in the Old Testament, as an offering for sin, the sin of sinners, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Upon him with the chastisement, the sins, the punishment, the guilt be upon him for he would take it for sinners. But then notice, notice the promise. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And he's saying, I know Jesus knew he would go through this affliction. He would go through this suffering, even being forsaken by his father. But he knew, push comes the shove, that still the father had made a promise to him that he would rise from the dead. You remember, on various occasions, Jesus told his disciples, they were going to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen. The chief priests and the, and the elders and the scribes will arrest me, turn against me and kill me. But I'll rise. Always, I'll rise on the third day. They, they never sort of heard that. But Jesus knew that. And so he entered this whole week knowing that even though everything was going to come against him, still, his father would not abandon him to the grave. That he would rise. He would see his offspring, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Then verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul. Well, Hebrew expression means out of the deepest, deepest, deepest anguish of his soul. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Those two things don't go together, do they? In Jesus, they do. Something's going to happen. Because of the anguish of his soul, as he pays for the sins of sinners, he's going to see something and be satisfying. How does the author of Hebrews puts it? put it? Oh, for the joy that was set before him. See? See, and there's going to be satisfaction. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's the joy. He says, I know what's going to happen in the midst of this. Because God is good and my situation is good. Good will come. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, Jesus' spoil is us, he gets us because of what he did, and that was his great joy. And our great joy is we get him. For whom is the better bargain? Certainly for us. That's our Lord Jesus, you see.
the way the apostle puts it in Colossians in chapter 3. And uh, verse 13. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the word, I'm sorry, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And Jesus said, my father will not put me to shame. They'll be put to shame. The evil one will be put to shame. And I'll disarm him so that my people may have life. I don't want to freak you out. But you know we're being watched. Friends and neighbors perhaps watching our lives. They probably wonder what we do on Sunday mornings. Where do they go? They probably don't wonder that for you who come to the 815 service. Because they're still in bed. And we're being watched by that which we cannot see. And you realize when we come to this table in faith with Jesus, we're pronouncing the enemy's defeat. I love looking at my dad's World War II stuff. One of the things I love looking at is the pictures of the days when it was announced that the war is over. And everybody was filled with joy. Uh, and they had no trouble at all announcing that, not only in the U.S., but all over the world and even to our enemies to say, it's done, you've been defeated, and now we can live in peace. And could I say, that's the joy here. Oh, the joy, not only to know that even in the midst of affliction, we have something great to share with others, the hope that we have. But even as we share that hope, what we're doing is we're declaring to all our foes, you've been defeated. That's the announcement that we make. And it should bring us that kind of joy. And thus we know that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? At least this. The victory's been won. The enemy's been defeated. And thus, you see, as we come to this table, we announce the victory, thus the defeat. Don't you know that in the insidious, insidiousness of evil, that when Jesus was dying, all the 
demons and Satan himself were rejoicing, thinking, we've won. But they hadn't. And as we come to this table, our joy is to declare we will not be put to shame because the enemy has been put to shame. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that this would bring us joy. That even in the midst of suffering, we can know that as we live out faithful lives, as we worship, as we share our testimonies, as we come to this table, that we're being very productive, we're doing something very worthwhile, we're declaring the defeat of the enemy of God. So I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know that we are in the very presence of this one who died and was raised, this one who indeed is the king, the conquering king, the one who's conquered sin and death, the one who's defeated our foe and his by the blood of the cross. And so I pray, God, that you would give us great joy. Some of us on this day, perhaps, are suffering deeply in various ways, including perhaps being mocked or at least misunderstood by others because of their faith. And I pray that as we all come on this moment to realize that we have something great to announce, the victory of our king and the defeat of the enemy. Be with us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.